So how are you guys doing? Enjoying the uh, fresh spring air? It was, it was summer and then it went back to spring. Kind of, it's a little cool, hey? But the forecast said it was going to rain yesterday and it ended up being gorgeous. So we can't, uh, we've got to be grateful for that. Um, so today's sermon is, um, <clears throat> if Jesus called himself the Son of Man, why do we call him the Son of God? And this is a sermon that started about seven years ago as um, uh, me and, and some other people from my church were sitting around the fire. This is my church back in Red Lake. And somebody just asked that question. If, why is it that Jesus called himself the Son of Man and we call him the Son of God? And I really honestly had no idea why. Uh, I couldn't think of a good answer, and I hate it when I don't have a good answer, especially when it's on something I feel like I should know. And so I made it a point to really study that out. And um, I ended up preaching a sermon on this in Africa in 2014. And then it was um, kind of on my hard drive. I had all the material ready. And this past week was just crazy uh, with different things kind of coming all. Uh, it's just been a busy time at the end of the semester. And so um, Thursday night, and just and I were sitting down trying to figure out how to relieve the pressure from our schedule. And I said, maybe I should recycle a sermon. I really don't like recycling sermons. I'm actually preaching the same sermon twice. Like usually I preach a different sermon <laughs> just because I hate repeating myself. Um, but this is a sign of the times for me. Um, so, and I think it's helpful for you because it's a really interesting topic. Uh, how many of you guys have wondered why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man? Is this something? And how many of you guys know why he calls himself the Son of Man? Kind of, kind of, yeah. So it, anyways, we're, we're going to dive into this. Um, because clearly, I mean, we believe in Jesus, right? Who here believes in Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? So yell out something that you believe in Jesus. Son of God. Believe that he's the Son of God, right? Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. The Messiah. The Messiah. So, I mean, every, pretty much everybody in the world... I mean, there might be some people that haven't heard, but pretty much everybody has heard of Jesus and pretty much everybody has an opinion about who Jesus is. The Muslims, he's part of their faith as a great prophet. The Buddhists, Jesus is one more, you know, enlightened person. Uh, the Hindus, he's one more incarnation of, of one of the gods, probably Vishnu. Um, for liberals or secular humanists, he is just a good teacher, a good person. Everybody's got an opinion about who Jesus is. So the fact that we believe in Jesus doesn't really set us apart. I mean, that... It's almost an empty statement, I believe in Jesus. You believe what about Jesus? And what, the what that we believe is that he is the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the savior of the world. It's through his death that we have life. This is what we believe. And so it's kind of a big deal that he never says clearly. You can point to the verse where he says, I am the son of God. He says over and over, somewhere around 180 times, I believe, uh, that he is the son of man. But he never says he's the son of God. So why is this? Um, first of all, uh, there was a part here that was going to be in the middle, and I moved it to the beginning because I thought it was important. Um, the disciples at one point asked Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? Because he's always talking about the kingdom of God is like, like, like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a fisher that went out to fish or a farmer that went out to sow. And the disciples at one point say, why do you always speak to them in parables? And he said, to you it's been revealed, uh, it's been granted to understand the mysteries of the kingdom, but to the others it has not been revealed. And as I read that as a young kid, I thought, well, that's not fair. Why do the disciples get stuff and the other people don't? And in another parable, Jesus says, 
about the parable of the talent, he says, to those who have, more will be given. But to those that do not have, what they have will be taken away from them. That's not fair. And we should have a capitalist government. The guy with, with more should, should lose that and give it to the person with less. Uh, that's not how it works in the kingdom of God as far as knowledge, as far as what God reveals of himself. Uh, the theolo- theologian Karl Barth says that God hides himself in revealing. God hides himself in revealing. Even in Jesus' incarnation, he came at a time and a place where the only access that I, you and I have is through the Bible, through what people have said. And even for the really important points of his life, his, um, his virgin birth, you know, somehow the Holy Spirit will come upon you. We can't see that. We don't have access to that. Jesus rose from the dead and nobody saw him do it. You'd think God would have had somebody there to see him rise from the dead. But God hides himself in revealing. And we, we had a passage today the, about the disciples or some disciples following Jesus, talking to him, the road to Emmaus, the famous discussion. Finally, they realize he breaks the bread and they realize this is Jesus. And poof, he disappears before their eyes. And this is, this is how God reveals himself. He said, if you seek me, you will find me. And that if we approach God with the perspective of faith, with the perspective of I want to learn, what we're going to find and what we'll find today is that if you dig, scriptures will show you treasures. But if you come with the attitude of prove it to me, prove it, show me the proof text, show me the verse, you're going to find yourself on the outside in a sense. That that's not how God prefers to communicate. He hides himself in revealing. And the mysteries are for those who stay after class and talk to the teacher, so to speak. Um, the second thing we need to talk about as we're coming closer to talking about this topic, we can't approach the, the subject from our context only. I mean, obviously, that's our starting point. We have language, words mean something to us, and so we can't help but start here. But we also need to work to understand the, the context of the original recipients. If you want to know the, the actual term, it's the Second Temple Judaism. So there was a first temple built by Solomon, then there was the Babylonian captivity, they came back, Zerubbabel built a temple that was significantly expanded by Herod the Great uh, from about 400 BC up to 70 AD is when it was raised to the ground and Judaism changed significantly after that. So that whole period is called Second Temple Judaism. And we need to understand that is the context of the New Testament. You need to understand, you have to understand at least something about Second Temple Judaism to really understand the mysteries of the New Testament. Uh, it's, It's one of the crazy things about how God revealed himself, that he revealed himself as a man, as part of a nation, in a time of, in a period of time. So you need to understand that period of time to understand um, the incarnation and and, and the revelation. Um, Fortunately, we have uh, the the major key for understanding Second Temple Judaism is really just the Old Testament. So this is the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, they would call the Tanakh or... um, I think the Tanakh, yeah, um, the scriptures that they would have had. So there's going to be two main uses in the Old Testament where the Son of Man was used. And as Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, they would have understood this in terms of the Old Testament. But I forgot to say one more thing, still talking about the context. Why did Jesus uh, not say clearly, I am the Son of God? He didn't say that clearly. As we're going to see in his trial, he basically said that, and we're, we'll get to that at the end. Um, as well, there's verses in John that talk about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes 
to the Father but through me. As well, uh, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Uh, how can you say, show us the Father, don't you know me, Philip? Uh, so there are places where he, he comes close to it, especially in the intimacy, the, um, the privacy of conversations with his own disciples. Um, but why didn't he just come out on the street and say, I'm God, worship me? I mean, right away as I say that, you can kind of see, well, that probably wouldn't even now get a really great reception. Um, we tend to lock people up that say that they're God. Um, and I don't think that's new. Um, you know, just kind of assume that they're, they're crazy or something. But in understanding Second Temple Judaism, a really great key for us, contemporary Judaism is very different from Second Temple Judaism. Because contemporary Judaism, well now, I mean, for, for uh, almost 2,000 years, they didn't have a land. And so that changed Judaism significantly. Second Temple Judaism is very similar to what we would term sometimes radical Islam. That might be surprising because we tend to, to uh, put radical Islam kind of, they're extremists, they're, they're, they're bad people. But just looking at their religion as it is, the, the logic of the religion, there's at least three big similarities. First of all, they're monotheistic. They only believe there's one God. And so they don't have, you know, they're not a religion that says, well, all roads lead to God. No, there's only one God. There's only one road to God. Secondly, they, they believe that religion and the state should be put together. They don't believe in the separation of church and state. So we believe in the separation of church and state. We don't think that, that pastors should be you know, part of the government and the government should be mandating religion. We believe those two should be separate. But you know, some radical Muslims believe they should be together and you should not have a right to practice other religions other than Islam in this country, in this place. And the Jews, for, their, for Palestine, for Israel, not for the rest of the world, but just for Israel, they felt we should have the right to, to practice our religion on our land and if you don't like it, you can leave. And if anybody isn't practicing it correctly, there's the death penalty or there's serious consequences. So in that way, too, there is a very similar understanding of... Uh, there's similarities between the two. And finally, it's, it, well, another one that I just thought of, it's also very works... Like, it's, it's similar in the sense that it's a works-based religion. You do these things and then you earn God's favor. There's similarities in that way. But also, they weren't content with the political situation they were under. So uh, many radical Muslims today, they're under a secular government or under a moderate Muslim uh, government. And they're always fighting to try and get control so that they can set up uh, a caliphate, um, <clears throat> a theocracy, uh, a, religion, a state religion, a malgate. And it's the same with the Jews at the time. The Babylonian captivity, after the Babylonian captivity, they only briefly had their independence. The only time in the uh, about 500 years between the Babylonian captivity and the time of Jesus that they had their independence was under the Maccabees. If you read the Apocrypha a little bit, uh, it'll tell you the story of how the Maccabean family won their freedom through um, basically acts of terrorism until finally they were able to do, do a war and, and get the Romans out, or the, it was the Greeks at the time, the Greeks out, and they had their independence for a short span of time, and then they ended up through alliances that turned more and more uh, autocratic, they gave their, their freedom over to the Romans. And then uh, at, during Jesus' time, they were under the Romans and they were trying to get their freedom again, as they did under the Maccabees, to set up religion and state, you know, the, the Davidic ideal of the kingdom. So this is why it was, a, it was a hotbed of continual unrest during Jesus' time. There were always these people rising up saying, I'm going to bring freedom just like the Maccabees did. Follow me, I'm the Messiah. 
Uh, and there were these continual revolts, these continual um, strife and, and what we would call terrorism. And um, leading up to finally at around, uh, I think it was 63 AD, um, 30 years after Jesus, uh, the Jews finally won their independence. Uh, they, they kicked out the Romans. And it lasted about seven years, and then the Romans swept in and absolutely annihilated everybody and everything, burned the temple to the ground, and actually made it against the law to be a Jew living in Israel. And that was the norm for a number of centuries. Um, up, and some of them were able to trickle back, but really it changed in, the, was it the 1940s, 50s, when Israel reestablished their state. Um, all that to say, imagine if somebody went to Mecca and said, I am the son of God. He wouldn't get many followers and likely he wouldn't live long. Very similar situation to Second Temple Judaism, imagining somebody standing up and saying, I am the son of God. Wouldn't get many followers and he wouldn't live long if he said it clearly, distinctly, just like that. And that's why, in my reading of scriptures, I think that Jesus did it in a way, revealed himself by hiding. He, he revealed himself, but in a slow way that if you understand it, if you, put, if you connect the dots in your mind, you'll understand what I mean. But he's not just going to come out and say it. He's, he's got a way of hiding himself through revealing. Okay, now let's look at the context in the Old Testament. Again, we can't just approach it as what does the Son of Man mean to us in our context. We need to understand the Son of Man in the Old Testament context, which would have been the world of the Second Temple Jewish system. So the first meaning of Son of Man in the Old Testament is just simply a generic way of saying human being. And often it's kind of a more poetic sense. Uh, who here has watched um, Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe or read Chronicles of Narnia? So Aslan always refers to daughters of Eve and sons of Adam. And you don't have to have a biblical background to understand what he's talking about. He's just saying human, but it's, it, it's kind of poetic. It's, it's kind of uh, sounds better than just saying you, hey, human, male, guy. Um, it's kind of got a poetic ring to it. And in a similar way, Psalm 8, uh, 5 uh, says, uh, When I consider the heavens, the work of your hands, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you consider him? So this is a way that in the Old Testament, son of man would have been referred to kind of poetically to kind of contrast to, you know, the grandness of vastness of nature and, and how God, you know, has chosen us to, to rule over creation. As well in Ezekiel, so that's the first use, just generic human, just a person. Ezekiel 3, or in Ezekiel, for some reason, that I don't totally know why, but whenever God talks to Ezekiel throughout the whole book of Ezekiel, he refers to him as son of man. That's like his way of saying, hey, you, is son of man, come here. Son of man, do this. Son of man, I don't think he ever calls him Ezekiel. Um, he, he just always refers to him as, as son of man. So this is where uh, Muslims would tend to use this as the context for interpreting Jesus to say, this is the way that God refers to a prophet. And so therefore, Jesus is saying, I am a prophet as uh, Ezekiel was. So this is the second sense, which is kind of the same sense, it's just a, a human being, maybe a, maybe a prophet. Um, but, um, yeah, okay, we'll move on. The third, confused in my numbers here. I, I'm going to keep it to two. Two senses, basic human or the second sense. In Daniel 7, 9 to 14. And we're going to airdrop into a larger, a larger um, vision here. 
Uh, and so there's things going on that we can't explain all, but it's talking about the end times and people are being judged and there's the beast and there's the horn and all this stuff. Um, and in Daniel 7, 9 to 14, it talks about God. I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and his hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, etc. So it's describing God and his throne. There's the nations before him and he's, he's judging them and he's ruling over them. And then there's more about continuing about the, the vision and, and the beast and, and the horn and other things that you need to... I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven... Remember this phrase, with the clouds of heaven... One like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, this is the one that was like the son of man that came riding on the clouds of heaven, to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting, and it will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this, this guy, this, this being in, in this vision comes before the Ancient of Days and is presented before the Ancient of Days, he is like a son of man, whatever that means. All the people's nations of every language will worship him and serve him. His dominion is everlasting and it will not be destroyed or pass away. So this is a huge question mark for the Jews because obviously as, as we read as part of our liturgy, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Jews only believe in one God. So this wouldn't be a big deal for Greeks. Okay, there's another God. No big deal. Uh, another God that looks like a human. No big deal. But for Jews, there's only one God. And so who is this son of man that comes before, before God in heaven? And then everybody's worshiping and serving him. In Judaism, you don't, you don't worship angels. You don't worship other beings. You only worship God. Um, it's very important within the Old Testament context. So who was this guy? And it was a question that's not really resolved. Daniel is one of the, Daniel is one of the last books written in the Old Testament. It's, it's a question that is not really answered. And so as Jesus starts his ministry, he's got these two senses. Is he referring just to a general person? Or is it this person in Daniel that we don't know who he is, but he's, he's somehow very, very important and perhaps almost sharing it in, in uh, divine characteristics? There's one more thing that we need to say about this. Um, when Jesus used the title, um, we're going to have to get a little bit academic. We're going to talk about articles. Do you guys know what articles are in uh, conversation? What are the two articles that we have in English? A and the, or the, depending how you use it. Uh, so there's the definitive and the indefinitive article. A means is the indefinitive and the is the definitive article. And we're learning this in... In English, and we had to learn this in French, of course, as I learned French a few years back. Um, so Jesus says he is, he doesn't just say, I'm a son of a man. If he said that, it would be like, why do you even bother telling me that? <laughs> we knew that already. Um, he says he's the son of the man. So this is a sense that's carried in the French, but not in the English, because it sounds really clumsy in the English, the son of the man. But in French, we say, le fils de l'homme. The son of the man. And that's a carryover from the Greek. That's a better translation of the Greek because in the Greek it's, I wonder if I can even remember, ho theos ho 
Huios. Maybe. Oh, it's been so long since Greek. Um, anyways, it's the son of the man. And so he uses two times the definitive article to set himself apart. And so he's, he's uh, if I asked you, are, are you a son of a man? I mean, all the guys in the room would say yes. You know, we agree. Are you the son of man? Uh, I, no. <laughs> we feel a little bit awkward when somebody, I mean, it's pretty pretentious to say I'm the, I'm the man. That sounds pretty pretentious uh, to, to add that definitive article. Um, but when you say the son of the man, right away you say, well, which man? Who are you talking about? If you're defi defining a specific man, I'm the son of the man, which man are we speaking about? And Jesus never defines who is the man that he's speaking about. But the Jews during Jesus' day were waiting for the son of who? The son of David. They're waiting for the son of David because it was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. They're waiting for the Messiah that's going to come. And then after David, it was prophesied, you know, they get, they're getting more and more information throughout the Old Testament. And one thing that was added is that he is the son of David, which is why it's important that Jesus was born from David's line. So Jesus comes and says, I'm the son of the man. At a time when everybody's waiting for the son of David. He doesn't say he's the son of David. Sometimes people say that of him, but he doesn't say it of himself, but he says, I'm the son of the man. Um... As well, just, just to add this in, uh, in, uh, in Daniel 9, 24, and 27, it mentions the specific number of weeks from the creation of the second temple until Jesus comes. And it works out to 486 years. It's supposed to pass between when Zerubbabel built the second temple and Jesus, the Lord, comes to his temple. And so this was right about the time when Jesus came. Of course, it's a little bit hard to, to measure time in the ancient world. So there was about 50, 60 years when people were coming and they're saying, okay, I am fulfilling the Messiah prophet, prophecy in Daniel. It's the time, the time is now, and I'm the Messiah. So around the time of Jesus, there were lots of false messiahs, lots of people that were saying they were the Messiah. Uh, and Jesus was right in the right time, prophesied by Daniel in Daniel 9. Um, and he's saying, I am the son of the man. So there's these three senses in the Old Testament that the Jews would have understood as they hear him speaking. See, just saying he's a generic person, as in, you know, Psalm 9, or as in the, in the case of Ezekiel, or is he speaking about this mysterious guy in, in uh, Daniel 7 that we don't know what to do with and nobody really understands where to fit that into their theology, or is he the Messiah, the son of David? And, of course, there would have been different understandings of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do when he came. And he, he uses this title. He's, this is the first time that somebody has used the title, the Son of Man, the Son of the Man, as a title for themselves. Ezekiel was called the Son of Man, but he didn't use that title for himself. And so it's kind of like he, he had this cup, this empty cup was this title. And he starts filling up this title with signification, with with meaning, uh, he, he adds significant, uh, half French, half English today. Uh, he, he keeps adding meanings to it until towards the end of his life, it's very, very clear what he means by the Son of Man. So now let's look at Mark. And we're going to just go through Mark because we don't have time to do all the books of the Bible, obviously. Uh, but also because uh, liberals would say that Mark, or I shouldn't say that, scholars would say that Mark was probably written first. And so if you're ever having a debate, Mark would tend to be the one that's the most solid of the gospel. So if we're going to go anywhere and convince people, let's start with Mark.
um, Mark 2, 1 to 10. Pretty much the whole book of Mark is explaining who the Son of Man is. Um, there's this story that I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it's the famous story where the paralytic was trying to get, the friends of the paralytic were trying to heal the, this man. They couldn't get through the crowds, so they lowered him through the roof. Uh, I don't know what, um, I hope they fixed it after. I always wondered about that. I wouldn't appreciate that if somebody made a hole in my roof. Um, and uh, they lower this guy down, and Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I can just imagine the guy saying, That's not what I came for, but thanks. Um, but the scribes and Pharisees said in their heart, This man blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, if you stop to think about that, you realize you don't need to go much further than that to realize Jesus is taking something of him on himself that only is really appropriate for God to say. I mean, we could just imagine that, you know, somebody in this room was having a fight with somebody else. And I come into the situation, I want to arbitrate, I want to bring peace. And I say, I've got a solution for you, Mike and Joanne. I know you guys have, have really, you know, you've, you've hurt her and she's hurt you and, and there's tears and, and there's all this pain. And I got the solution for you, okay? I forgive you both. But what does that solve? Does that solve anything here? Why does that not solve anything? I'm not the one offended. It's not my problem. If I've been offended in some way, I'm taking up an offense for somebody else and it's like, mind your own business, right? Um, but in uh, Psalm 51, after David sinned with Bathsheba, he committed a terrible sin. He was repenting before God. He says, against you and you alone I have sinned. Why? Because Bathsheba is God's daughter. You, uh, was it Uzziah? What was her, her first husband's name? Uzziah is God's child, and the people of Israel are God's people, and all and David is God's child, and the, the primary person that was offended in that act was God, and he broke God's laws in, in so doing. So the primary person that we hurt when we sin is God, which is why it was appropriate, if Jesus was God, it was appropriate for him to say, I forgive you for all your sins that you've done against other people because the primary person that's offended is God. And the Jews around him said, well, you don't have authority to do that. You're just a normal person. Uh, and Jesus, the story continues. Jesus says, what, which is easier to say, uh, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And then he heals the man to show that the son, the son of, of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Uh, it says in verse 10, that's why he did the miracle to show that he had authority to forgive sins. So then we can move on. Um, as well, uh, the Son of Man has authority to cast out demons. And there's this big uh, uh, conversation back and forth in chapter 3 about whether he casts out demons by uh, the devil, the, the Lord of the demons, or by the power of God. And he explains that he has the authority over Satan because he, he has a greater spiritual power. As well, he has the power to calm the sea. And there's the the great big storm where his sailors, his uh, disciples thought they were going to sink. He calms the storm and they say, who is this man? He has power even over the wind and the waves. And more significant probably for the Jews is that he is Lord of the Sabbath. He works on the Sabbath. Not a whole lot. I mean, his disciples were grabbing grain and rubbing it in their hands and eating it. <laughs> it's not like they were breaking a sweat. But for the Jews, it was a big deal. They were working on the Sabbath. They were doing something. And Jesus said, um, I... Uh, 
the Sabbath was not made, people were not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath for, for people. And the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath is part of the, the law. And who gave the law? It was obviously God that gave it to Moses. Who has a right to change the law? Not just anybody. You can't just go changing something that God gave uh, to humanity. So in that way, he's saying he is over the law. He has the right to change things. He is Lord even of the Sabbath. Uh, three different times in the book, he prophesies that he is going to die and suffer for his people and then rise again. Um, so obviously, I don't mean to be glib, but it's very human to die, but it's not very human to rise from the dead. And so he said, the Son of Man will, will suffer, he'll be mistreated, and after three days he will rise. It says in Mark 10, 34. In Mark 14, 22, it sa he says that uh, as he's instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, take ye, this is my body, and this is my blood. And in so doing, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant, which is shed for many. So his blood is the blood of the covenant. He's making a new covenant through his death. Again, it's normal to die. Everybody dies. But people don't create a new covenant. You have to think in Jewish terms again. The, God led his people out of Egypt. He had all the plagues, and there was the Passover, and he made a covenant with his people. And he said, this is how things are going to be. You are my people. I am your God. We have a covenant. And there was the Mount Sinai and the fire and the, the Ten Commandments and, and all this stuff. Covenant with my people. And Jesus said, my blood is going to start a new covenant. That's not just anybody that can do that. I mean, I hope, you know, um, I hope my life counts for something. Uh, and perhaps, you know, well, maybe I, don't, maybe I don't want to say it this way, but maybe somebody would, would hope that their death might signify something. But to signify a new covenant between God and man, that's, that's something, something else. As well, um, a really significant passage is Mark 13. And this is where uh, Jesus really speaks about the end, of, the end times. And uh, a little interesting bit of trivia here. Um, scholars, or we could say liberals, would, would try to say that there's a, a lost kind of source or gospel before the gospels called Q. Has anybody heard of Q? Anyways, so, some of you have heard of Q. It's, nobody's found it. It's just a theory that maybe there's this gospel before Q. Because if you look at, at where the gospels overlap, it seems as though maybe there's some, a different source. Um, if you're following the rules of, of source, source criticism to, de, to find Q, this document has to be in Q, or this passage, uh, Mark 13, is in Q. And so the whole theory that liberals will say is, well, Q is mostly based on the teachings of Jesus, and so the, the first Jesus wasn't really God, and then the later Gospels you know, developed that Jesus is God. Um, that's an interesting theory, except if we look at everything that Jesus says in Mark 13, which was part of Q, it, it causes significant problems for saying that Jesus was not God. Um, this is where... Uh, the disciples talk about the temple, isn't this amazing stones? And Jesus says, um, don't, not one stone will be left on top of another. This, this temple is going to be destroyed. Uh, when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be frightened. Those things must take place. Uh, and, and all these things will happen before the end comes. And then specifically in verse 24, he says, 
In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the, sun, the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Do you guys remember Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory? So they would have been like, hey, wait a minute, didn't you, wasn't there something in Daniel about Son of Man coming? Um, and he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. And then it, it goes on about, so be ready for this time because you don't know when the Son of Man is coming. So there's at least three things in this passage. First of all, he's going to rise from the dead. Secondly, he's going to come with power. Thirdly, he's going to um, gather his elect, and it, the implication is probably resurrection from the dead. Uh, maybe he'll just gra grab the ones that are alive, but it kind of seems from the context that uh, people that die too. Um, and then with this whole business of you don't know the day or hour that he's coming, it seems as though he's coming to judge the earth. Um, because it's talking about the master will come and, and will give rewards to this, the good and the bad servants. So who has the right to judge the earth in that way? If it's not God, who has the right to, to decide what, what, what punishments you should have in an absolute sense for the good and bad deeds you've done? Finally, um, at his trial, remember I said he's kind of slowly over time filling up this cup and explaining, so towards the end, you're like, okay, he could forgive sins, he's Lord of the Sabbath, he's uh, got power over demons, power over, the, over the nature, um, he's coming back to judge, he's, who is this guy? It's kind of seeming like he's God. At his trial, he makes it absolutely clear. Um, Mark 14, 61 to 65. Um in all four Gospels, as it talks about his trial, it sounds as though, I mean, Jesus just kept the silence, which is a great strategy. <laughs> I, I've heard, if you're ever arrested. Um, and, and they were just scrambling to find good witnesses because they wanted it to be legal. They wanted to, to, to make it look good. And um, so picking up in verse 61, he kept silent and did not, did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all con condemned him to be deserving of death. So Jesus just opens his mouth one time and he gets crucified for it. Um, but there's a reason. It, he didn't. It's what he said in the, those vi that very, very short verse. I mean, his whole trial is here. There's just this little bit of red here. <laughs> That's all he said. But there's at least three things he said. First of all, he said, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Christ, the Messiah, Son of God? And he said, I am. So first of all, he said, I am God. So if you're looking for a proof text, right here. He does say he is God. Secondly, the way that he said it is absolutely astounding. Does anybody know why he said, I am? He said the name of God. So right before the, the priest said, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? He doesn't say, are you the Christ, the son of God? Because even Jews today, if, you, if sometimes I'm reading uh, professional articles, I can tell if it's a Jew or somebody influenced by that because they'll write G hyphen D. 
Even in English, they won't write the full name of God. And that's uh, an allusion to how it was, you know, in the Second Temple of Judaism, they would have written Y-H-W-H. They wouldn't write the vowels, they just write the consonants. Um, and they wouldn't say Yahweh. They wouldn't say Jehovah. In fact, we don't know if it's Yahweh or Jehovah because they never said it. And so now non-Jews are reading this and they're like, which vowels actually go in there? We don't actually know. Um, and so he said, are you the son of the blessed? And, and Jesus replies, Yahweh. He says, I am. That in itself is blasphemy. That in itself is worth dying over. Um, you know where this comes from, right? This is from Moses with the burning bush and, and God says, go deliver my people. And, and Moses says, I don't know what your name is. And God says, Yahweh. He says, I am who I am, or I am. It's kind of a difficult to know how to translate it. But he just says, I am. And so Jesus, this is the second thing. First of all, he says, I am the son of the blessed one. I am the son of God, the Messiah. Secondly, he says it using the word, I am. And thirdly, he says, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Makes a direct parallel back to Daniel, was it seven, six or seven? This passage that we looked at makes it absolutely clear. I'm that guy that is to be presented before the throne of the Ancient of Days, that is to be given dominion and power, that is to rule over all the earth, that all nations under heaven and earth will, will uh, bow to me. That, that's me. I, I mean, that's Jesus. Um, and that's why all the people, or all the Jews right away went out and crucified him, because he had said he was the Son of God. So having said all that, because Jesus is the Son of God, we don't have a law. In the, I just want to read here Hebrews 10, 1 to 4. I make allusion to this. We don't have a high priest that needs to go into the temple time after time after time to make sacrifices. We don't have Jesus isn't just a good person to show us an example of what we should, how we should live. He isn't a good prophet to lead us again back to the law and living a good life so that maybe God will approve of us. Um, but he came to pay the ultimate sacrifice so that one sacrifice for all forever can be made so that we can boldly approach the throne of grace and ask for forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ who takes away the sins of the world. So, on that note, let's, let's pray to Jesus, who is the Son of God. Jesus, I thank you that um, you have hidden um, your truth from the wise of the world and, and revealed them to babes and, and to um, people that are not, not wise. And I just thank you that uh, you came and revealed yourself as the Son of Man, which means you are the Son of God. And I thank you, Lord, that we have forgiveness uh, through your death, and we have forgiveness through, um, well, we have an example to follow through the life that you lived. And I just pray, Lord, that you would, um, you would illumine our hearts and that you would lead us through your word as we go on this week. In Jesus' name, amen.